Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. today on Rogue News on a very special broadcast, which is a bit of a hybrid between the Canadian Patriot podcast and Rogue News. CJ, that's an excellent, excellent intro you just did. Uh, Whitney, we're, we are so honored to have you here joining us. We have a, a live audience as well, as far as I could tell. Uh, they will be posing some questions. V really wanted to be here, but he fell sick, unfortunately, under the weather, so uh, he'll be here in spirit. Uh, oh, somebody said I'm here. That is, I thought that was V saying I'm here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Whitney has produced a remarkable set. At first, the announcement was a book was going to come out called One Nation Under, Under Blackmail. As it turned out, it was two volumes of One Nation Under Blackmail. I've got my, my copy here. I've been reading this thing through for the past week or so. I'm not done yet, uh, admittedly, volume one. Um, it's long, so I can't blame you. <laughs> it takes a while to get through. It's something. I mean, I, Whitney, I got to say, I going into it, I, I knew that there was going to be exceptional rigor. I've, I've read your work now for many years. Um, I didn't expect necessarily what hit me, though. And I mean, I've got, I've got, my wife can attest this, I've got uh, pages and pages. These are, these are notes. Wow. These yeah, are notes. groovy. Because I'm trying to keep my mind uh, following your mind as you you're pioneering trails in the wilderness here and <laughs> I, I i'm really really doing my best and and you can see i've gone through like whole things of post-its like blocks of post-its you my, my 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 wall in my study is crazy um i don't it know happens. How you should it. have seen me writing the book i had like <laughs> i like printed stuff off and i'd like ran out of space so i'd like piles of it on the ground and my daughter would come in and be like what's this paper doing here she's like about to be five right and i'd be like don't touch that <laughs> it's there it's there for a reason <laughs> even though it just looks like i have paper all over the floor <laughs> so, uh i mean i probably should have gone with post-it notes but you know well, that's the thing I was asking too. I mean, because I mean, you're you're essentially going into the question of Epstein and this phenomenon of Epstein. You just scratched on that, and you or you maybe pulling the the thread might be yeah. another way of looking at it. And then you just pulled the pulled and pulled, and then what ended up happening yeah. is you you essentially recast <laughs> the entire 20th century uh, <laughs> and remapped out um, 
a more coherent exposition and mapping of intelligence app agencies, their origins, their execution, their purpose, their uh, multi-dimensional nature, since yeah. I mean, they're so much different than people think, as well as blackmailing operations, front group shell companies, the mafia. Like, you just pulled it all together in such a way. So before we go into it, did you have like a like a Sherlock Holmes? Like, you know, there's these images of like Sherlock Holmes with all of these like points of connection on a wall. Like, what, what was your, your technique to keeping a track of like all of these, this, this material in your mind? Um, well, it kind of, it kind of, uh, it didn't really develop that way in terms of, um, like mapping it out, like on a wall or like physically. Um, it was more like, like you said, uh, the main thing I would, the thread I was trying to pull on are the Jeffrey Epstein intelligence connections. Right. Mm -hmm. And I realized pretty quickly that when you're trying to explain the nature of those intelligence connections to people, um, most people don't really understand, first of all, how intelligence agencies operate. Like, so for example, people think of the CIA or Mossad or MI5, right? They're like monoliths unto themselves. They don't really see these like transnational networks. They don't necessarily know uh, like the role of CIA fronts and how that sort of facilitates a lot of melding of like, you know, intelligence and corporate power, um, the role of organized crime and, you know, financial fraud and financing black budgets and stuff like that. So, you know, obviously I had to kind of go back and explain a lot of it. Otherwise, a lot of key aspects of the Epstein story, particularly as it rates, uh, relates to the Epstein connections, don't make sense. And so a lot of um, the stuff with the early Epstein story, you know, when you go in the, uh, to that part where he's leaving Bear Stearns and he's sort of entering this world of shadow finance more formally, um, you know, he's, in, he's associated with figures that are very much part of the Iran-Contra situation. And I think most Americans in general, and, you know, and just most people, not just Americans, but in general, either have a very rudimentary understanding of what Iran-Contra was, or like, don't really know, maybe mm -hmm. they've heard the term and they don't know what it means. I, it, most Americans, as I understand it, think of it as like the arms for hostage scandal in the rig administration it was really a lot more than that as as people will read the book we'll find out you know it was it was very extensive and involved you know illegal financial activity to a significant degree and drugs trafficking among other things and you can't really you know and then you the more you look at iran contra it becomes pretty clear that you can't really separate that so much from things like the promise software scandal where you have people like galene maxwell's father robert maxwell playing a starring role in all of that so uh, anyway, to explain how Iran-Contra is set up, I ended up going back farther and trying to show that there's all these other sexual blackmail characters that are very much like Epstein, to, because I wanted to show also that the mainstream narrative is bullshit, that Jeffrey Epstein is an anomaly. There, right. it, American political history especially is just littered with people like him. So eventually I went back far enough and I was like, well, I guess I should explain to people how this all happened. And so I decided um, to sort of start off from Operation Underworld. But I could have gone back even farther um, right. because there's stuff, you know, I sort of talk about like Mayor Lansky and Lucky Luciano as, as sort of the guys that teamed up with uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Office of Strategic Services. But you have like the people that mentored them and... Um, you know, layers of different people that came before them, right? You know, you kind of have to pick a point 
uh, to start it off. So I figured, you know, that particular point would make sense because, you know, it gave me an opportunity to, to explain, you know, how the OSS and, you know, the OSS being the precursor to the CIA, how that came into existence, how it's intimately tied up with the oligarchy and also British intelligence in a very significant way um, and how that's influenced things over time. One thing I did uh, miss out on that Richard Grove pointed out to me later was the Mayor Lansky's ties to British intelligence back in the 30s and how that may have colored some of the early stuff that I wrote about um, in the first couple chapters of the book. But, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, if you're trying to write like a hundred year history uh, with like, you know, in less than two years with kids and like lockdowns and COVID insanity, <laughs> um, you're bound to leave out a thing or two, <laughs> I guess. I think we could forgive you for that. And you did, you did Thank allude you. to it. I mean, because you, you did, <laughs> you did in, in just getting at the, the buildup of the Bronfman apparatus and, and um, the various yeah. interconnected components of that throughout the 19th, before the twenties during world war one, even you did allude to the, the strange role of Winston Churchill, who just sort of comes in and yeah. obviously you don't unpack it completely, but you did zero in on the role of British intelligence in some higher hand that gave uh, certain key figures that went on to build up this entire crime syndicate. Um, good advice, strangely good, insightful advice at the right time. You're like, wait a minute. There's... It's a completely unbelievable story if you're referring to the Churchill, Lewis Rosenstiel yeah. uh, happen, you know, just by chance vacation. Yeah, that Rosenstiel's whole... Uh, backstory makes no sense. So I didn't try and like read too much into it, you know, because I don't have the answers, but obviously the official story there doesn't really make any sense. And I think it's no coincidence that someone like Rose Lewis Rosenstiel, despite his influence at the time, managed to have no biographies written about him. Samuel Bronfman actually almost had no biographies written about him until he was uh, either dying or dead. So apparently during his lifetime, he did not want people to write about him. So I guess Rosenstiel was the uh, was the same. But as far as Churchill goes, you know, I could have expanded more on, on there and in, in the role of, you know, Britain in that particular period, period in North America. But then we'd have like a 2000 page book. <laughs> well, that, that's for so. volume three. I think. Yeah. Oh, no. People keep asking about that. They're like, it should be FTX. <laughs> uh, so, you know, well, uh, this you is what I'm saying. I'm like, just give me a small vacation before <laughs> I start. You know, because yeah, I, I mean, this was a lot of work. And I, I do off the bat too want to say that um, I had a really great researcher help me with uh, a lot of the, uh, specifically volume one, which is uh, Ed Berger, hmm. who I um, is in the acknowledges page. And I've, I've tweeted, um, well, we, we've done podcasts together. We're having an investigation actually about FTX uh, come out soon and, and some other things. Uh, but really? he's a genius. And I could not have, uh, definitely could not have put volume one together without, without him. I uh, cool. just don't want to take know. all the credit. Yeah, well, he's a, I kind of found him in, in, a, in a weird uh, way that actually goes back to a, a weird story about uh, Curtis Yarvin, the the guy that's sort of yeah, like the, the, alt, the, uh, the, the alt-right guy that yeah, yeah, is a yeah. big influencer in, in Peter Thiel and stuff. His brother, there. Yeah. yeah, his brother Norm Yarvin was like apparently the guy that put a pipe bomb at Yale Law School in the early 2000s and like didn't get in trouble for it and weird stuff. So anyway, um, we found each other through that story. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So you, you touched on um, Operation Underworld. This is something that not that many people are aware of. And obviously, this is sure. <clears throat> not the start of it, as you pointed out. 
but this is a really key jump on point. Um, could you say a little bit more about Operation Underworld as far as it plays into the broader picture that you paint? Sure. So, um, you know, basically what I'm trying to argue in the book more, you know, really more than anything else is that the power structure um, of the United States and, the, you know, more broadly, the Anglo-American empire is basically run by organized crime and has been for a long time. And so how did this happen? Um, well, the easiest point, uh, you know, origin point of that, but you could, like I mentioned earlier, argue that it, it goes back even before then. Um is Operation Underworld, which was when the Office of Naval Intelligence with the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, lurking somewhere in the background, uh, teamed up formally with uh, organized crime, specifically the National Crime Syndicate, as it was operating in New York City. This was done allegedly to obtain intelligence for, from dock workers because there was concern about German saboteurs uh, were going to uh, scuttle and, and destroy ships and in New York City Harbor, uh, but as I note in the book, there wasn't a lot of actual evidence to that, and it seems to have been a, a talking point rather uh, somewhat seeded by British intelligence and, and the media and, and elsewhere and sort of created this uh, justification that it was necessary and, you know, it being wartime as well as when wartime necessity to team up with dark dock workers in this way. And the dock workers union was controlled by the mob. And so the only way to get to the dock workers was, was to go through the mob. So that's sort of how it happened. Um, but at this point in uh, in history, New York City, you know, it, it wasn't just the dock workers union that was like owned by the mob. At this point in the 40s, uh, they owned pretty much all of the unions. Uh, and had taken control of the Democratic Party in New York uh, because the unions formed a major power base of the Democrats at that point in time. So um, basically what you have is the ending of the Tammany Hall era in New York. And if people are familiar with that, uh, the reason for its collapse um, was because of its association with organized crime. So this was sort of the rebranding of uh, the Democratic Party in New York as not necessarily organized crime adjacent, but still run by organized crime. It was sort of like a facelift, but it's the same um you know, entities essentially running the show. And so actually the mayor of New York at this time was a guy named William O'Dwyer who ended up being spirited away uh, to Mexico by, by Harry Truman. So he couldn't be prosecuted for basically, uh, you know, using his administration as an organized crime racket when he was in charge of New York city. Um, so anyway, uh, that's sort of the backdrop, I guess. So this, um, alliance between organized crime, specifically the National Crime Syndicate, which is like Mayor Lansky, uh, Lucky Luciano. It's essentially a melding of the Italian mafia and the Jewish mob. Um, this continues significantly uh, over the past several decades and deepens and eventually, you know, they essentially fuse and you can't really tell where one ends um, and, and the other begins. Right. So um, a key point, though. Um, so, you know, you have Luciano and Lansky sort of at the top of this. Uh, but Luciano, during uh, this period in the 40s, is deported to Italy. And he still is, you know, even after he's deported, is involved with military intelligence to a, d a degree. Uh, I don't include a lot of this in the book, by the way. But other intelligence operations, uh, you know, CIA connections and things like that. Well, after he establishes himself in Italy, and then it's really Lansky who's left to sort of run run it in the U.S. This criminal empire, mm -hmm. and a lot of other people uh, tied up with Luciano were deported as well um, as part of this whole thing. And a lot of the prosecutors uh, that were involved in this, or the the 
you know, law enforcement officials were people like Thomas Dewey, uh, who later becomes a business partner of Mayor Lansky. And that's the, um, governor, and the governor of New York, right? He was governor of New York, yeah. But he started off as a prosecutor, one of these tough-on-crime prosecutors, mm. and then later gets in bed with organized crime. It's the same model that people like, you know, Rudy Giuliani have followed, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, where they sort of make a, a big reputation for themselves as putting away uh, these criminals, but they're usually criminals that, you know, uh, the criminals on top want to put away because they're their comp their competition. Really, it's about consolidating power um, right. with these types of guys. So there's 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 so many angles I kind of want to go in at the same time. So I'm gonna have to. It's it's tough to like select one. That's fine. Media. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So just one thought that just entered my mind as you were just talking. Now I didn't really read this in the book per se, but I'm sure you got a thought on this. Um, Henry Luce. A, a lot of the um, a big chunk of the the Wall Street establishment in the United States, as well as a big chunk of the the establishment in in Europe, were pushing for fascism as the great miracle solution. You know, and uh, for the Great Depression, uh, Mussolini was being sold as Times Man of the Year, and like you know, there were this was supposed to be the, the the next big great thing. Did you notice that a lot of these people, like Lucky Luciano and and other uh, mobsters at this time, were working to support or help build up the fascist apparatus? You know, they were very pro Mussolini in the Italian mafia, but also I, I guess probably one of the key figures there wasn't necessarily seen as part of the Italian mafia, but was definitely connected. It was a guy named Generoso Pope mm -hmm. uh, who ran basically, uh, well, he owned uh, the Italian language newspapers in New York City. But he he became very wealthy because he ran the main cement company in New York and later uh, nationwide and that his ability to consolidate control over the that particular industry in New York and, and later nationally was because of his very deep uh, association with organized crime, specifically Frank Costello and figures like that. His son, Generoso Pope Jr., uh, uh, Frank Costello was his godfather, actual godfather, which is kind of ironic because Costello is one of the inspirations for the novel and subsequent film, The Godfather. Uh, but Generoso Pope, after uh, doing psyops for the CIA, goes and creates uh, uh, the Inquirer. <laughs> the tabloid. Um, and he's also Roy Cohn's best uh, childhood best friend. Um, but it was Generoso Pope, this um, this guy that ran the Italian language newspapers and was very pro-Mussolini and heavily promoted Mussolini in his, his publications, um, that developed what Roy Cohn would later adopt and call the favor bank system. And it's very interesting to see Generoso Pope Jr. and Roy Cohn uh, talk about how they learned about the politics of power from this particular man, because it was all about uh, backroom deal making, you mm. know, and quid pro quo type stuff. And the way they describe it is really uh, fascinating. You know, I tried to delve into it in the book because ultimately this style of, of you know, uh, deal making, you know, we see it in Roy Cohn's most famous protege, Donald Trump, the art of the deal and all of that, you know, that he learned that from Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn learned that from Generoso Pope. So there's a direct line from that. Um, to a very influential figure in U.S. politics today. But I think it's pretty clear that that type of deal making isn't necessarily exclusive to Trump. But one of the things that that Cohn adopted from Generoso Pope is something called uh, that Roy Cohn called his favor bank system. So everyone has an open account in the favor bank. And depending on what you do or don't do for Roy Cohn, you get like pluses or minuses. Right. And so you know, it's basically leverage over people, a system of, you know, uh, managing influence, really. It's kind of interesting. I wonder how, you know, influential that type of system is yeah, uh, like today. Yeah, it's a behavior, uh, behaviorist calculus of just 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's interesting in the context, uh, well, when you consider that Roy Cohn himself, as I note in the book, was involved in sexual blackmail activities that involved organized crime and also involved, you know, top people in U.S. law enforcement, like like J. Edgar Hoover. Um, so you definitely end up having leverage over over those people just because they're involved in the same thing you are that like no one can know about, right? Because it was like a, a homoerotic thing. So in that period of U.S. history, you know, you get exposed for being involved in that. Your political career is is mm -hmm. over. And that's why at the same time there was the Red Scare, there was the Lavender Scare. And the main reason for behind the Lavender Scare uh, was because they thought that closeted homosexuals were more susceptible to blackmail. But it's uh, kind of ironic when you consider that, you know, a lot of people running the Red Scare, like Roy Cohn, and of course Hoover had involvement uh, in that to an extent as well. You know, they're blackmailing people... <laughs> Uh, as part of the Red Scare using, you know, that same, they're, they're doing the blackmailing. Yeah, it's a basically. lot of Freudian projection onto the yeah. system. I mean, but that's one thing you, you get across too, is that <clears throat> people like Hoover and like Roy Cohen themselves seem to have been the product of blackmail themselves and became almost, yeah. they, they became hyper adapted to this where the victim becomes totally. like sort of identified. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy when you think about it. So they're initially entrapped and sort of sucked into this. So they're blackmailed mm -hmm. uh, and they're like, but then at the same time they realize the power of blackmail. So in the case of J Edgar Hoover, he became obsessed with it, obsessed yeah. with blackmailing friend and foe alike. Right. Uh, but only after I get, well, maybe he was into it before, but by the time he was blackmailed, which was apparently by the mob, uh, he, he was totally obsessed with it. Though the the story of how J. Edgar Hoover was initially blackmailed is very interesting because it shows you this early connection between U.S. intelligence and organized crime. It was originally associates of Mayor Lansky that obtained these pictures of uh, J. Edgar Hoover engaged in oral sex with his longtime deputy, Clyde Tolson. And I mean, that was essentially an open secret in Washington. And now people like laugh about it in Washington, D.C. speeches like it's not a conspiracy theory, you know. But anyway, those pictures were shared with James Jesus Angleton, who is mm -hmm. like one of the top figures of the early CIA, the, the big uh, early counterintelligence chief. So, you know, to someone like Angleton, uh, these photos are a for are intelligence, right? So blackmail obtained by the mob is seen by the, you know, the, the intelligence community as necessary intelligence. So associating with the mob uh, nets them the benefit of intelligence gathering that affords them leverage over powerful people in the U.S. political system. Yeah. And more often than not, the intelligence community, whether in the U.S. or anywhere, I mean, they'll justify all sorts of stuff uh, as long as the justification is either national security or intelligence gathering. And I think actually now in the U.K., they passed a law where basically intelligence assets or agents can commit any crime under the sun as long as they're intelligence gathering. Right. So. <laughs> License to kill and then some. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's that that seems to be one of the the, the worst components of what the, the Cold War Cold War brought about was this logic. Not that that logic wasn't already employed, but it really became more explicit that anything goes as long as it's in uh, opposition to evil, godless communism. You can work with fascist Nazis. Um, you could you could kill. You could do whatever you want as long as it's to defend the liberal world order of freedom. And um yeah, you just, this monstrosity was just created out of this process. And um, when you have psychopaths or just, just pathetic characters 
like like Hoover, who's a pathetic character. You can't even call him necessarily like it's hard to categorize people like that. But you you have this anecdote of like it's uh, very like, hard to find anything positive about the guy. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, well, he was no he was blackmailed by organized crime. That's why he never went after organized crime. Look right. through Hoover's decades long career in charge of the FBI. He declined to ever go after organized crime, claimed that it was not an issue. Well, At yeah, all. even the term organized crime was something he prevented from even entering into the, the consciousness, right? And you, yes. you go through a little bit of like how Bobby Kennedy really clashed with uh, with Hoover and that apparatus around that that specific issue, as well as Cohn and others. Uh, can you say a little yeah, bit? Yeah, Cohn and Hoover both hated Bobby Kennedy and they were obsessed with destroying him. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is interesting, right? Because didn't wouldn't didn't Bobby Kennedy and his brother also get a certain amount of support? I mean, this is one of the things you get, which is I think partially true, but I think people often simplify it to the point of lobotomy cases where they're like, oh, but aren't they? Didn't they only become powerful because of their father's mob connections? Um, and people often brush over the the fact that no, they 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 were not necessarily creatures of that system. You you, how would you account for? people like Bobby Kennedy or his brothers uh, breaking from their, their what was expected of them and going to battle with this whole crazy apparatus. I'd probably have to know more than I do mm -hmm. about like the educational backgrounds. But as I recall, Joe Kennedy had loads of kids. So, mm -hmm. you know, yes, they're, you know, they have their father there and probably outside of the home right that association will help their careers because joe kennedy wasn't didn't just have mob connections he accumulated a lot of political power uh yeah. for himself right right so i'm sure that was probably helpful on like cvs and resumes and stuff uh for them but when, when you have a lot of kids that's it, not necessarily like they're exactly everything that the father is is being passed on uh, mm -hmm. to all of his kids in the same way it would be in like an only child or two child household, maybe, you know, I don't, but I don't really know a lot about their specific relationship, but it is pretty clear that once, um, uh, Bobby Kennedy and also his, his brother, John F. Kennedy, when they were, uh, had political power themselves, they tried to be their own people and they had their own standards and they didn't really necessarily, um, agree with the way these systems operated that were developing around them um at the same time right in terms of like this blackmail obsession that like hoover had i mean he tried to go after bobby kennedy with anything at his disposal really including trying to blackmail congressmen uh to introduce uh to ask uh, to hold hearings that would look look uh make bobby kennedy look bad and stuff uh, like Neil Gallagher, I think, is probably the best example of that. And also, like, weaponizing the press against people, um, inventing stories, planting it with compliant members of the media to destroy people and stuff. So, I mean, you have people like mm -hmm. that. And, it, you know, I'm not saying Bobby Kennedy never did anything bad. As, you know, he apparently was involved with bugging Martin Luther King, right? But, you know... Uh, it, it, it's a complicated world and I think it's unless you really study it extensively and how power worked in this particular era it's kind of hard to understand what it was like you know in the case of John F. Kennedy they tried to sexually blackmail him with the whole Profumo affair network yeah um after he was elected president and that didn't seem to work quite well so there was a some sort of power struggle there and I think you know from what I I've I've heard from 
people that extensively research Kennedy because that, you know, the John F. Kennedy assassination and backstory to that is like a field in itself to really mm -hmm. be specialized and know everything that's in that, which is why I didn't really get into the John F. Kennedy assassination in the book because it's like people have written entire books just about that one event. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but as far as I understand, people thought because he was promiscuous, that would allow him to be easily controlled, right? Mm -hmm. In the same sense that people make that argument about like Bill Clinton, but I think they have their, you know, very different mentalities there uh, when it comes to responsibility and, and how they view the office they're holding. You know, I think it's pretty clear that Bill Clinton is like, this is a chance to grift and grift hard, you know, and I don't <laughs> think Kennedy saw it that way. <laughs> they can both be promis promiscuous and have that against them right but i think it's ultimately about how you approach the office and obviously you know since kennedy's assassination everyone that's held that office has not viewed it the way kennedy viewed it or at least has not attempted to exercise that view if they did hold it yeah they definitely fell short that that's that's a theme that's that's a big theme and yeah the, yeah. the story of neil's Ga neil gallagher as well is is something which <clears throat> I, I'd listened to some interviews of him uh, that he delivered before he died. And, and yeah, he's a, one of these interesting characters who was not necessarily a hundred percent for what, what Bobby Kennedy was doing. But as you get through in his, in the book, he wasn't willing to compromise with this whole Hoover cone apparatus and instead uh, chose to um, actually resist their at first offers and of rewards and then, and then threats and he had to go to war and he won a few little battles, but ultimately but then he lost down. Yeah, yeah, he got forced out. And that seems and to happen more often than not. And this is back yeah. in the seventies, right? I mean, just think about yeah. how it is now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. He was actually put in prison and, and I think there were forged documents, other things as well that were, that were wired in there. So the whole thing is, is messy, but now we're getting into the seventies. Um, this is, I guess now a good place to um, introduce the character. So we'll, we haven't really got it at Epstein so much. We've been sort of just painting some of the, the backstory of, of some of the apparatuses. Um, Robert Maxwell comes into play. And I don't think you can understand uh, Jeffrey Epstein unless you look at the figure of his little madam creature thing, Jocelyn, <laughs> and her father and that whole apparatus that her father brought online and, and, and yeah. worked with or worked for. Could you say a little bit more about that during that? All right. Yeah. Well, Robert Maxwell, you know, you could probably just write, I could have written a whole book just on him. I mean, it's really crazy stuff that he was involved in. So as far as we know, um, well, first of all, he, he was, his name isn't really Robert Maxwell. That's a name he adopted at the recommendation of his superior in the British military. He was born in Czechoslovakia, fled, served in the British military in, in World War II. Um, and then, um, after that, he he goes to Britain. He marries a French woman who becomes Bat Betty Maxwell and, um, you know, settles in Britain, tries to become a, a publisher and expands that over time. Uh, he served briefly as a labor politician and then uh, lost his seat and then almost lost his flagship media company, Pergamon Press. And then a few years later, he claws it back and then begins expanding. His biggest expansion period comes in the 1980s. Robert Maxwell, to me, was pretty obviously a narcissist in terms of personality. He was desperate to uh, be bigger than Rupert Murdoch, who would be his main competitor um, in the media space at that particular point in time. Uh, and a lot of his acquisitions were fueled by Rothschild Inc., which is uh, the Wall Street branch of the Rothschild banking dynasty um, that had been mostly neglected by, by the family. 
Uh, but then at some time in the early 80s, they decided to get more involved. They wanted to expand their presence in, uh, in the United States specifically. Uh, they hired a man named Robert Peary. They wanted to focus specifically on mergers and acquisitions. And they picked about three corporate raiders, all of whom were British, um, uh, uh, for the bulk of their mergers and acquisitions deals, which were basically planned by Rothschild Inc. But it was you know, reported in the press that it was, oh, it's Robert Maxwell. Oh, it's James mm -hmm. Goldsmith. Um, and then the other guy, I can't remember his name, but he's a close associate of, of Maxwell's. And so, you know, like the Macmillan acquisition, a lot of these other acquisitions in the 80s uh, were planned by this particular bank, right? Um, so at the same time, by the time you get to the 1980s back, uh, you know, Robert Maxwell had already been an asset of Israeli intelligence for about 20 years, give or take. Um, and also in the 1980s, he, he gets involved in a lot of espionage work for Israeli intelligence, you know, so he's on the pay, he's affiliated with them for longer, but a lot of like his more active, um, collaborations, uh, I don't know. The activities he did at the behest of Israeli intelligence, most of those, at least that we know about, uh, took place in the 1980s. So this is um, his involvement with with arms stuff in Iran-Contra. And then also, uh, perhaps more importantly, from the U.S. perspective, his involvement with the Promise software scandal, where thanks to Henry Kissinger... Uh, who's a, a traitor to America, uh, Robert Maxwell was able to sell software with a back door in it, uh, the back door being planted by Israeli intelligence. Uh, it was installed at uh, sensitive U.S. Uh, nuclear labs, uh, Los Alamos, and I think another one, Sandia, I think. Um, and all of those nuclear secrets were stolen by Israel as a result of that. Um, so, you know, that's part of the promise software scandal. It's much larger than just the Robert Maxwell component. Uh, basically most of the intelligence agencies of the world were, uh, backdoored by Robert Maxwell and Israeli intelligence. The CIA had a competing version, but it seemed to have focused not necessarily on intelligence agencies like the Israeli one. It focused on banks, which mm. is interesting. They were more interested well, according to people like that were involved, like Ari Ben Menasha, it was collaborative. So like the CIA was marketing their version on finance and Israel was doing intelligence agencies around the world, but they were like sharing information, right? Between each other. So yeah, yeah. Um, you have like the World Bank being tapped and like, um, you know, finance flows everywhere. It's tied up with BCCI. It's tied up with... Um, drug trafficking and money laundering for the narcotics traffic that, you know, was part of Iran-Contra as well for mm. people familiar with the Mina, Arkansas aspect um, All right, of well, that let's, particular let's, operation. Let's... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's so, it's so comprehensive, Whitney. I mean, I, I, um, well, Robert Maxwell had his hand in a lot of pies. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. And so this yeah. particular stuff we're talking about now, the Iran-Contra promise stuff, is where you really get into the meat of this power nexus that, that Epstein steps into, which is U.S. and Israeli intelligence mainly, but with, you know, organized crime affiliations uh, mm. for sure. And so the one last point I want to make on Robert Maxwell is that he is credited before his death by uh, the guy who at the time was the top uh, FBI agent in New York, John Patrick O'Neill, who uh, in un, under rather uh, interesting circumstances dies on 9-11. Um, but O'Neill said that Max, what Mac, Maxwell's real legacy was setting into motion a, coal, a global coalition of criminals, that Robert Maxwell... Uh, teamed up, uh, and I write about this in the book too, um, his business partners were people like Simeon Mogilevich, 
a Ukrainian-born big-time guy in the Soviet-era mafia. And he uh, he allows Mogilevich and a lot of these gangsters um, in Eastern Europe to establish links. Um, in, first, in the Israeli financial system, he gets them Israeli passports. Um, and then they from there, they go global, including involving themselves in the U.S. and beyond. Um, and so Robert Maxwell, first and foremost, really fostered this tie between organized crime and Eastern Europe and Israeli intelligence, um, and, and, which I think, you know, have major implications when you look at conflicts today, like Ukraine, uh, for example, which is actually where Mogilevich is from. Uh, but um, on, this, on the other side of that, he didn't just uh, create that connection. He combined them with... Uh, uh, organized crime un um, uh, factions uh, in Europe, in, in North America, South America, Asia, all over the place, a global coalition of criminals. Yes. He, yeah, really made organized crime like the power structure, you know, uh, mm -hmm. that we're dealing with today to a significant, very significant degree. So again, it's very important, like I said, sort of earlier to focus on, on the fact that a lot of these uh, structures I'm trying to sort of interrogate and expose in the book um, are very much transnational in, in nature. So anyway, yeah, uh, it right. seems like you wanted to go to back to Iran Contra for a bit. So <laughs> I just wanted yeah. to squeeze that. <laughs> it's like every, every second sentence, I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta unpack that. <laughs> gotta no. Um, it's yeah, hard. That's why it's a thousand page book. I, I, you I know? get it. I get it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, Robert Maxwell, like you like you said, I mean, he's in British intelligence. He's in he's in Bulgarian Eastern European intelligence. He's yeah. in Israeli. He's just everywhere. But and and sort of taking, I guess, techniques that have already been used for blackmail. And I guess, would you say that the only and I do want to get back to Iran Contra. I really do. <laughs> um, would you say that the only um, reason for these types of um, operations is blackmail or is it also partially recruitment seeing who's got the right stuff to be part of the inside clubs or how would you describe um, what the purpose and intention is that Maxwell carried you out? Mean of, you mean of sex blackmail operations? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Of Robert Ma okay, so with, with sex blackmail operations, I think there's like really one of two strategies. So one is that you're getting a lot of leverage over another person. Hmm just by virtue of them being at these illicit gatherings. Yeah. The other one is, and so, you know, there's, there's the strategy where you invite and entrap a powerful person. The other strategy is to have someone who's not powerful, uh, compromise them from the off and then elevate them into positions of power and have them elected. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Iran Contra. All right. So you made a, a very key point that this is much more important than people realize. Um, in, in, in so many ways. And yeah, people have a sense of like Ollie North and, you know, like there's, there's certain like very superficial ideas of it. Um, yeah. But this was really a moment when something changed within the capabilities of within, I guess you could say the octopus uh, as, as it's, you brush upon it in the book. Could you maybe go through a little bit of that and why this is so important? What, what exactly changed and what was the purpose of it all? Right. So I think one of the key points to, uh, to hammer home about Iran-Contra is one of the reasons, one of the key reasons it was set into motion. So basically, Bill Casey, a CIA director, had invested a lot of time and money in building up a support apparatus for the Contras in Nicaragua uh, to dethrone the Sandinistas, who, by the way, had come to power to uh, depose a U.S.-backed dictatorship ran by the uh, Somoza family, I believe, um, 
that had been in power for decades and was, uh, they were not nice. So anyway, um, the Contras, uh, you know, were supported by the U.S. establishment more broadly, but Congress uh, imposed limitations on Casey saying, now you can only impose humanitarian aid or you can only uh, uh, send humanitarian aid. You can't send lethal aid. And so because a lot of the support network Casey had been investing time and money in had been paramilitary groups to counter uh, uh, the Sandinistas, like the Contras is sort of the umbrella term for all of these paramilitary groups. Um, he wasn't okay with that. So basically what he tried to uh, do as a result of that uh, was find a way to finance covert operations where he didn't have to go to Congress. So there was no, there wouldn't be congressional oversight or really oversight from any part of the government at all of intelligence activities. Uh, so he wasn't going to go to Congress to ask for money. He was going to finance it by other means. So from the off, Iran-Contra wasn't necessarily about financing or dethroning the Sandinistas. It was about how to make uh, a giant permanent black budget so that the CIA can conduct, can conduct covert operations wherever the hell it wants, whether it's uh, financing paramilitaries or uh, doing anything else. It's not necessarily about just Nicaragua and the Contras, right? The Contra situation is what set it off. So what you have as a result of that are finding illicit revenue streams that allow, um, you know, Bill Casey and the CIA to finance these covert operations without uh, congressional approval and thus congressional funding. So um, as people know, probably from uh, if you're familiar with Iran-Contra, that translates into illicit arms trafficking and illicit drug trafficking and money laundering, really more than anything else. Um, but you could argue that, you know, beyond that, uh, there's obviously other rackets at play here. Sex trafficking most likely being a big one as well, but you don't really see it necessarily so much in the uh, Iran-Contra story, though it could very well be there. We just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so well, basically, um, you know, these uh, types of activities have long been the rackets of organized crime, oddly enough. So you basically have them uh, sort of taking that same model as a way to independently uh, finance uh, themselves. But also, you know, there's been concerns, for example, that, you know, money uh, in more recent decades has just been stolen from taxpayer uh, from taxpayers and sent directly to the black budget, uh, which is probably an evolution of the same strategy that Casey developed. You know, the, the $2 trillion missing from the Pentagon, for example, uh, that was announced on September 10th, 2001, you know, where did that go? A lot of people think it probably went to the black budget. And now, you know, um, Catherine Austin Fitz and Mark Skidmore have calculated that it's about $21 trillion stolen from the Department of Defense and HUD specifically. That's just two, you know, government ministries, departments, right? Yeah, yeah. So it could probably be a lot more. Um, and, you know, it, I think you could really pinpoint that type of decision on the part of the national security state back uh, when this decision was made. Uh, to not, you know, use the traditional avenues of financing. So again, money's a key part of this. And when it comes to Jeffrey Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein leaves Bear Stearns under very su suspicious circumstances. And there's a Bill Casey connection there that I can unpack in a second. But after he leaves that, he uh, steps into this world of shadow finance, where by his own uh, description in this period, he's either hiding or finding looted money for powerful people. So obviously that means he's intimately involved in the offshore financial system and in illicit money flows. 
if he's not helping people hide their stolen money, he knows where to find the stolen money. Right. So he has a very intimate working knowledge of, uh, you know, the labyrinthian offshore illegal banking system. And his one of his main clients at this time was Adnan Khashoggi, who is one of the people who, with his money, uh, set Iran-Contra actually into motion, at least the Middle Eastern side of that. Um, and uh, Adnan Khashoggi's main bank at this time was BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. So if you have Epstein doing your suspect finances and that's your suspect financial institution, that's suggestive of an Epstein-BCCI tie. And one of his former business partners, who's now deceased, uh, Steve Hoffenberg, has said that there was an Epstein-BCCI connection. And in that same period of time, one of his uh, uh, Epstein's mentors in this period is Douglas Elise, who's an arms dealer, a British arms dealer with alleged British intelligence ties, who's also very close to Khashoggi uh, during the same period. But apparently they were financing not the Iranian side, but the Iraqi side, because this is all about this whole thing is about funding and financing both sides of the Iraq-Iranian war. And that's what, basically what Israel wanted out of it. They wanted both sides, two mutual enemies to destroy each other. Um, and so the U.S., um, you know, more or less collaborated in that because I think they had shared foreign policy goals um, in that regard. But you have Epstein sort of on on that angle of it. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you want me to keep going or go back to the the Bear Stern stuff or. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> oh, oh, it's tough. OK, so the BCCI thing. Yeah. For those who don't know as well, like this is something which was just I think I correct me if I'm wrong, but it was created in like the seventies and it became yeah. very quickly one of the biggest banks in the world. Um, yeah. Supposedly because it was a development bank and it was involved right. in remittances and all of this stuff. It was, uh, allegedly, you know, created with the involvement of Pakistani intelligence, but it seems like it was Pakistani intelligence and the CIA specifically former CIA director, Richard Helms, mm -hmm. um, among others. Yeah. Um, Definitely a very complicated bank. I would argue that it, it's really more of a private intelligence apparatus than a bank. As I note in the book, they were heavily involved in the sex trafficking of micers, of minors, the bank, right. BCCI. Right. They were supplying like little kids underage to like Saudi. Yeah, oil to VIPs of the bank, yeah. including the ruling clans of the United Arab Emirates that were giving yeah, yeah, them yeah. prepubescent kids from Pakistani villages. And it was the head of BCCI that was doing it. And he had his Ghislaine Maxwell equivalent. Can't remember her name. But mm -hmm. she would basically take these um, these kids to the, uh, the city and get them fancy clothes and jewelry, teach them techniques for whatever, and then send them over there. That's essentially what Ghislaine Maxwell did. So mm -hmm. did Epstein and Maxwell get the model for what they did from BCCI? It's possible. Or it could have been from someone else. Adnan Khashoggi used mm -hmm. his yacht uh, to sexually entrap people. Uh, he allegedly had a harem of women there that were used as bait in, yeah. in that sense. And, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, his uh, U.S. political history, especially in these circles, is just littered uh, with people like like Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, also you had the growth of the Mujahideen, the Operation Cyclone from the sure. CIA and that whole like people are, are always taught. Oh, yeah, yeah. Terrorism is a natural sociological phenomenon. It just naturally arises when people don't like freedom. And it's like, well, no, when you actually look at the amount of artificial. Yeah, just the most expensive covert operation in history at that point was necessary to create it. Yeah, um, yeah. And all of the narcotics flow and everything out of, out yeah. of Pakistan and Afghanistan. I mean, come on. It's uh, yeah. And that's yeah, all like growing at the same time as Iran Contra <laughs> as well. Like yes, apparently yeah. you have overlap. Allegedly, Douglas Lee, who I mentioned earlier, was also uh, involved in arming the Mujahideen at that period of time, 
And since oh, yeah. he was mentoring Epstein in this period, which is a, that mentorship relationship is attested to by his children um, and continued their association with the between the least family and Epstein continued through the decades. Um, anyway, it's attested to you by his sons and stuff. So, I mean, it's very possible that Epstein could have been involved in some Mujahideen, uh, you know, arms trafficking to an extent as well. You were saying that, um, and there, there's something I'm going to want to get back to after uh, regarding Microsoft and that whole, because you already like alluded to some connections. I'm not going to say that yet, though. I'm just throwing that out there as, as a seed for the future. Yeah, that shit's uh, crazy. Anyway, yeah. yeah, I have more to unpack there. I had to order some books. That'll probably be volume three, if we're honest. Okay. Oh, anyway. Uh, I knew it. Okay, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's one of these journeys, eh? the never ending story. Um, but there is, there is actually, no, there is a cohesive wholeness to this. There, there is an end point. I could see that. Um, but the, uh, which is, we take these, these, these assholes down finally, and they, they finally pay, <laughs> pay the price for their sins. But, um, one thing that I was going to say is, uh, okay. Epstein himself emerges out of this weird insidious web he's he's now tied to a whole variety of things um you have you mentioned that he was also part of um a major ponzi scheme yeah. during this period and maybe into the the 90s I, I could you say a little bit about like what we, what his role was with that and um and the the yeah like what, what was his role in in banking a little bit more bear stearns and the ponzi scheme and and could you say a okay, bit those more? are separate periods. So yeah, Bear okay. Stearns ends in 1981. He has this right. very specific murky period of time where he's in this intelligence world with Lisa and Khashoggi. That apparently ends in 1987. 1987 is the year that he teams up with Leslie Wexner. Though depending on who, who you believe, they teamed up in 1985. Who really knows the exact year, right? But 1987 is the year that Epstein teams up with Steve Hoffenberg and together they execute what at that point I believe was the largest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history. Uh, sorry, Hoffenberg, you've been dethroned by FTX now. No. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, that particular Ponzi scheme was executed by a company that Hoffenberg, I believe, had founded uh, that was called Towers Financial. Uh, right. Douglas Lease was a principal there and his son, Julian Lease, worked there. So that appears to be the way in which um, Epstein entered this particular company, uh, though Epstein himself claims that he was introduced to Hoffenberg by John Mitchell, who was the former attorney general under Nixon. But who knows if that's actually true or not? Um, he doesn't talk uh, He in, a, in his past interviews. Epstein never brings up Douglas Lease. And because he's like this shady arms dealer, maybe he decided it was best he didn't. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, Towers Financial is this massive Ponzi scheme of moving money back and forth and creating the appearance of liquidity when you don't have it. And, you know, stealing customer funds to try and acquire this and do this and do that. And it implodes in 1993. And, you know, at this same time, he's be basically becoming a top financial advisor to Leslie Wexner at the Limited. Um, and by, I think, uh, the early well, 1990, he took over as Wexner's money manager. And then a few years after that gets this very far reaching power of attorney from Wexner where he's allowed to do whatever he want with uh, with Wexner's money. Mm. Um and has, you know, uh, just pretty much complete control if he wanted it over everything. I think that was 93. Anyway, 93 is also the year the Ponzi scheme at Towers Financial collapses. And uh, at the grand jury proceedings, uh, Hoffenberg is on the stand and names Epstein the mastermind. That's actually the narrative of the grand jury prosecutors. Um, and despite this... Uh, Epstein's name is dropped from the case. And in 1993, uh, Epstein makes three visits to the Clinton White House. The first one, uh, he's invited, apparently, 
at least signed in by Robert Rubin, uh, who at that point, I think, was on the National Economic Council or leading that for Clinton. Uh, But before 1993, uh, he was head of Goldman Sachs, which, by the way, was one of the chief uh, accomplices of Robert Maxwell's uh, financial crimes, at least that we know about, that unraveled after his death in 1991, uh, like the, the Mirror Pension Fund scandal. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting that you have yep. Robert Rubin being the person who's inviting Epstein to the White House. Um, and then after that, you have Jeffrey Epstein being involved in this very suspect fundraiser that's being managed by the First Lady's office, Hillary Clinton, uh, that has to do allegedly with redecorating the White House. Uh, but for some reason, you have people intimately involved in BCCI and shadow banking on the list. Um, and it gets a weird mention in Vince Foster's alleged suicide note which if you know anything about the Vince Foster story was fabricated by someone in the first lady's office, most likely Hillary Clinton herself and was discovered in the briefcase 36 hours after he died and 36 hours also after police observed his briefcase being empty and not having a suicide note in it. Um, But anyway, Vince Foster would have been in charge of deciding whether any of those funds with that particular fundraiser were illegal or not. And it's very interesting that the only mention of Hillary Clinton um, in that suicide note is exonerating uh, her from any uh, funny business with that particular fundraiser that Epstein and Maxwell. Yeah, in his uh, suicide note, he chose to say, oh, yeah, Hillary was like on the up and up, by the way, before I died. Yeah, Hillary definitely did nothing wrong with the fundraiser is basically what it says. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if you think Hillary planted that to exonerate herself and she actually did the opposite of what the suicide note says, and that means that fundraiser in which Epstein was involved was super suspect. And isn't it interesting that you have a Ponzi schemer, a financial criminal, his name is dropped from a major case and he gets involved in White House fundraising for the Clintons. And then he has seven, uh, you know, 15 meetings roughly in like almost just a year more or less with a guy named Mark Middleton at the White House, and Mark Middleton is a central figure in the 1996 campaign finance scandal uh, for the Clinton's re-election campaign. And then, you know, not to get too much into that, because there's a lot of intrigue and and stuff there that takes a very, very long time to unpack. We could possibly do a second interview about that if you're interested when you get through volume two. Uh, But after that, of course, there's the Epstein-Clinton relationship that everyone knows about. Uh, where Clinton is going around an Epstein's plane and setting up the Clinton Foundation, which is the political slush fund of the Clinton family, right? So basically you have Epstein from Ponzi schemer, name dropped from the case. He essentially, the way it looks, becomes a financial wizard for the Clinton family. Right, right. That And, and there's also an overlap there because the Gates Foundation is being created around that same time as, as the well. Clinton Foundation, that's correct. Yeah, and, they're, and that's being then used to fund the Clinton Foundation and the, the various Clinton Foundation-connected initiatives. There was a lot of cross-pollination between the two, specifically sure. with things like the Clinton Health Access Initiative, which was also set up with a lot of involvement directly from Epstein. Actually, Bill Clinton attested to that, of course, before Epstein was infamous, um, saying stuff like, oh, my whole HIV-AIDS program, you know, Epstein basically told me how to set that up, <laughs> you know, right. so that's that's troubling. <laughs> And since especially, you alluded, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. No, 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 you go, you go, please. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, especially since we know that Epstein, even the New York Times and the Guardian will admit wasn't interested in eugenics. So, well, there you go. You just said it. I mean, uh, there, there's this weird intersection with this fixation around types of science, science or depth ideas of what biological science is that smells a lot like eugenics, either implicitly or in some cases like Epstein explicitly. Yeah. Um, 
in so many points of connection of the things he's funding. And people forget that he wasn't just this. I mean, we, we were often given, again, a very one-dimensional idea of Epstein as this shadowy figure who had, you know, dirt on a lot of people in power. But yeah. he was also well, the focus in the mainstream media is, is just on sex trafficking. That's this it. guy was involved in a lot more. Yeah, he was a bankroller for major scientific initiatives in Harvard, MIT. Um, The Harvard relationship is very crazy and also involves Wexner a lot uh, because Wexner basically created the Center for Public Leadership or the CPL at Harvard, but started along with Epstein funding Harvard in 1991 uh, in in, in connection with uh, Henry Rozofsky, if you're familiar with him, who was a Harvard professor. Um, who goes, who's, you know, pretty famous within Harvard lore, I guess. Um, but you know, there was a lot of donations being made by Epstein and Wexner specifically. And, but the center for public leadership starts getting, you know, it's, it's top body gets like stuffed with Epstein associates, people like Leon Black and Glenn Dubin, for example. And they're basically making young global leaders programs. And that was basically the whole arc of Wexner's philanthropy since he created the Wexner foundation as training, Young global leaders, whether it's in uh, the North American Jewish com- uh, community or the Israeli government, which was the initial focus, but with the CPL at Harvard, it expands to everything. And it actually partners very closely with the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader Program. So probably most people in your audience have seen that clip of Klaus Schwab saying, we penetrate the cabinets and all of that. That was actually at a, 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 a forum at the Center for Public Leadership. Uh, where he's talking to David Gergen, who's hand-selected by Wexner, uh, the head of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard. And if you watch the full thing, not just the clip, if you watch that full forum thing at the beginning, they talk about how extensively uh, they collaborate. And actually, um, uh, the the Young Global Leader Program has a summer seminar at the Center Mm -hmm. for Public Leadership that was financed, or the, the funding for that was facilitated by the Clinton Global Initiative, which Epstein helped set up. My God, eh? Fun. It's too much. <laughs> it's too much. Yeah, it's it's so enmeshed. And I mean, you you got yeah. some strange characters coming in and out of this process too. Yeah. I mean, it, <clears throat> I I yeah. There's again so many things. Damn. Uh, but Lynn, Lynn Orchard or Rothschild. <laughs> That's just how it is. Okay. <laughs> um, no, th- this is wonderful. It's really this is the but but Lynn Forrester to Rothschild as well is, is yeah. coming out of this process. Who get who mm-hmm. gets married into one of the like a Rothschild clan, and she's mm-hmm. a high level. A player in the Council for Inclusive Capitalism today with the World Economic Forum and the Vatican. And the Pope. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You have all of these points. And she's like part of this whole Epstein weird Wexner operation in the 90s and and early 2000s. Yeah. Actually, I think she, one of the reasons she's not talked about and why Epstein's relationship with Deutsche Bank is poorly explored is is related to her because she Mm. has a longstanding connection with Epstein. Very cozy. It seems to have uh, begun sometime in the 80s. She allegedly, uh, she was allegedly helped by Epstein when she was divorcing Andrew Stein, who uh, oddly enough is is tied up with uh, the same Rosenstiel Roy Cohn networks in New York um, that we were talking about earlier. Uh, but Lynn, oh, I forgot where I was going with that. Sorry. Uh, oh, Deutsche Bank. Yeah. So she's uh, involved with like uh, Deutsche Bank pretty uh, I think their microfinance consortium and some other stuff. She has a longer standing relationship with Deutsche Bank than Epstein does because Epstein went from Bear Stearns, right? Bear Stearns collapses in 2008. He goes to JP Morgan. Uh, one of Wexner's top business associates who created the new Albany company with him helped pick Jamie Dimon as the head of JP Morgan. So that's probably why um, Epstein thought it was safe for him. 
And then after JP Morgan uh, dumps him, he goes to Deutsche Bank. Uh, okay. Probably because of Lynn Forrester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of these people are all into pushing forth a transhumanist agenda. They're all ideologically mm-hmm. this neo-eugenics stuff. You you mentioned, I just want to unpack this a little bit more as we as we sort of roll out or uh, round out the conversation today. Um, Epstein himself, people are like, no, he's not really a eugenicist. Um, he actually talked about wanting to seed or plant his seed uh as part of a renewal yeah. of humanity or something. And, and his ranch in, in uh, was it New Mexico? Is it? Uh, yeah. Was a center of a lot of controversy for a good reason. Um, could you say a little bit more about his eugenics thinking and the sorts of things he was promoting in terms of um, Eric Lander's work in the human genome project and other things that look like science on the surface, but are actually tied to this type of very insidious um, perversity that he was uh he was into yeah sure so epstein was provably very interested in this uh era of genetics based medicine which probably explains his patronage of someone like eric lander whose Mm -hmm. big claim to fame is the human genome project but actually if you look before then eric lander was tied up with this uh darpa contractor called thinking machines that was all creating supercomputers and people that were big names at that like marvin minsky and danny hillis are very close epstein associates so it may have come through that as well um but the the gene-based medicine i mean you look basically at, at epstein's involvement in the virgin islands and everyone just talks about oh pedo island epstein island yeah but he was doing a lot more than that in the virgin islands uh there's like testimony he gave to courts in the virgin islands where he's talking about this company he wants to set up and he basically calls it he describes it as a biomedical google where you search um people's genomes for indicators of disease or problems or whatever it obviously that is the selling the sell the sales pitch it's obviously a much more slippery slope but in order to populate that biomedical google he wanted to genomically sequence everyone living in the virgin islands the the native islanders uh, to do that and stuff so he was very interested in like the mass sequencing um of of you know just different populations which is you know something that's been done to great extent uh, specifically now in the COVID era with all the pcr testing um but by companies like illumina um and uh, i think there's a few others uh of course the uh, what 23 and me which is tied up with a you know the head of that is married to the google co-founder that used to eat lunch at epstein's mansion in new york a lot of these mm. other big tech guys Right. So that's that's the other side of this. So you have basically Epstein being one of those guys who's like in the middle of this merging of big tech and big pharma. He definitely wanted to be in that space from a very early stage. But now you see how that's advanced even without him to a significant degree. And you basically have uh, big pharma and big tech merging with a lot of joint ventures. A good example is a Google Health and GlaxoSmithKline making Galvani Bioelectronics. Um, among other examples. So that that's the type of medicine that Epstein, of course, is into. Um, and, you know, as your work has shown, John Klesak and, and others have pointed out that um, Julian Huxley, when he, um, you know, is, is um, writing out his vision for UNESCO, says we need to make the unthinkable thinkable again about eugenics. And UNESCO is the social cultural organization of the UN. So it's manipulating the social cultural milieu to accomplish just that making the unthinkable thinkable again. And he basically, you know, roughly 10 years later says uh, coins transhumanism and it's the new eugenics. 
right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's about merging man with machine. So once you have these new technologies about genetic manipulation, eugenics stops becoming something about creating, you know, the, our selective breeding, right? Mm-hmm. And who can't breed and what races can't breed and making a master race. It becomes about engineering the master race in vivo, right? Not so much yeah. about reproduction. It's yeah. about intervention into the human body and manipul- manipulating it in vivo or manipulating a fetus or an embryo and all of that. <clears throat> yeah, so yeah, Epstein's yeah. very interested in that. And, you know, he wants to, he wanted to cryogenically freed his head and his, his penis so he could like bone people forever and he he's just insane stuff um and yeah he wanted to be like genghis khan and, and like just have a bunch of kids and have yeah. little epsteins everywhere to but i mean that's not exclusive to epstein actually there was an article recently i think it was in forbes talking about all these super wealthy people how they want to have loads of kids so that uh the future population is mostly them and not the poor stupid people <laughs> yeah it's funny right because these people are, are always malthusians as well they're devoutly religiously malthusian and yeah. want to reduce the world population but for their particular uh breeding habits no that 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 shouldn't be bounded in any way no no uh, they think they're in a different category it's the rest of us where they're like god they keep reproducing like bunnies yeah yeah you know but yeah well, that, that was actually Church, Churchill himself could be a, a proto-transhumanist because when when confronted with the the implications of the Bengal famine that killed three million Indians, he was like, ah, they just yeah. they produce like rabbits anyway, kill more of them. And I mean, but it's the, the definition of transhumanism, it's built into the word, right? Like they see themselves as more than human. It's very like Uber mention, like yeah, you know, but like I pointed out in some recent interviews, you have people like H. G. Wells, you know, yeah. talking about the bifurcation of that. So you're gonna have the beyond human and then the subhuman you're not going to have anything in the middle you either go one way or the other you go the way the elite are going to go which is the beyond superhuman right or you go to subhuman uh you know surf morlocks uh, you know permanent worker slave class yeah yeah well it's it's a disgusting way of Thinking, I mean, this misanthropy is so, so perversely disgusting and pathetic. And they, it's like they're they're willing to go to the ends of the earth to try to get humanity and the universe to fit in accordance with their ivory tower notion of what we should be, despite the fact that all evidence we could find for thousands of years demonstrates a totally different characteristic of what humans are, what the universe are, that they refuse to acknowledge. Um, because I think if they if they actually began to acknowledge reality as it is instead of as they want it to be, um, they would have to themselves change, which they're fundamentally incapable, it seems, of, of willfully doing. There, I don't see any examples, maybe you have, but I, I haven't seen any examples of anybody from that higher echelon of the oligarchical class who willfully like, became humble and was like, hmm, I feel like I've been living my life awry. Maybe there's a couple of examples, but maybe I should change. I, 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 can't, I can't think of any off the top of my head, though. <laughs> Yeah, but I think once you're in those systems, it's sort of like once you're in like these sexual blackmail circles, like if you want to leave, you can't, Mm. you know, or they'll Mm. just kill you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What you said about um, Leslie Wexner, I I read one of your your little uh, pieces on uh, Leslie Wexner's demons. I found that. Oh, isn't that crazy? Did you read the article that I got that from, though, in New York Magazine? Yeah, I did. Yeah, It's, it's a trip. It's a trip. It really is. And I think it blows your mind, actually, when you consider that this is the guy that has done more uh, to train and finance uh, is Israel, Israeli government officials and Jewish American leaders in in Mm. the United States. And it's a guy that openly says that 
you know, I'm possessed by a demon. Why does he telegraph that in a nationally read magazine? Uh, I don't know. That tells you a lot, though, because why would he want that out there? And it's so bizarre because if you read the article, it like promotes the whole demon thing multiple times. It's like the main theme of the article is that mm -hmm. he has this entity living inside him that makes him accumulate uh, more and more power and, and money. And uh, he has a, basically a split personality. I mean, it's it, it, depending on how you read it, he's either demon possessed or has like a, a very severe mental disorder where he thinks he's mentally he, he's possessed. You know, that was sort of how I was reading it in terms of like thinking about the disassociated personality type that they were working on in MK Ultra and Tavistock. People like Artie yeah. Len and others were working on this question of how do you fragment the personality? Um, it seems almost like he was a he was exhibiting a lot of the cases when he could even identify when, when the interviewer asked him like, what does this look like? And he was like myself. And um, yeah. What does the demon look like? It looks like me. Yeah. <laughs> that's how the article ends. And you're just like, the fuck did I just read? Yeah, exactly. But it, it does seem like there's this, this is like part of the, the, um, the, the processing of uh, upper level managers almost when you, when you think about like, what is it that, uh, is the experience of somebody going from, you know, maybe quasi normal, healthy babyhood to becoming something like that, um, that's been refined over centuries and centuries, it seems to almost be a fragmentation of the self into like this Janus like um, pseudo self that you can break off into as you because I'm like, do how do people engage in such perversity that we are, are encountering regarding not worse than pedophilia, you know, like worse um and and actually find pleasure out of that it's so anti-human how is yeah. that possible and mm -hmm. it's difficult for people to grip their minds around and it should be difficult to get the mind around uh how that could be normalized or institutionalized but it seems like that that gave us that that leslie wexner uh example gave us gave me at least a sense of of how the the compartmentalization of the identity uh into these controlled schizoid outcomes might be cultivated in the upper level managers who maintain the system um over maybe the i mean he's signaling it for some sort of reason and it's very telling about why he'd be interested in financing um a lot of the activities in which uh, jeffrey epstein was probably engaged in and yeah. also i mean as i note in the book Je uh leslie wexner has a long-standing association with organized crime mm -hmm. uh that's very troubling and it's amazing he's never been prosecuted but then again he's ohio's richest man um and he basically um what I didn't get uh, get to talk about when I was talking about uh, Epstein and the White House visits is at that same time, Epstein and Wexner were having the Iran-Contra airline that's provably tied to the CIA, Southern Air Transport, relocate from Miami where it was doing all this like uh, drugs, arms trafficking between the U.S. and Latin America during Iran-Contra. They relocate it to go from Columbus to Hong Kong mm. during that same time that uh epstein's having all these meetings with mark middleton and stuff so you know if you're like a retail billionaire and you're like oh yeah i sell women's clothes and bras and kids clothes um i need the cia airline to bring my textiles to ohio yeah yeah what's missing from that picture and mark middleton i mean just so i you you you, you mentioned him a couple of times already for those who who don't know he met a, a bit of a a, a strange fate more a recently. grizzly fate yeah in may just a few months ago yeah yeah one of the most 
Um, Just as I was writing magic- about him in the book, it was un- yeah. <laughs> Freaky, yeah, yeah. One of the most imaginative suicides. He really wanted to die. Apparently, I mean, he put himself into yeah, it. Yeah, that he like you know uh, suspended the laws of physics so he could kill himself. Basically, yeah. So if you're interested, yeah. uh, people watching, uh, he was found hanging from a tree by the neck, uh, not a rope, an extension cord around his neck. And a shotgun wound to the chest. Uh, he killed himself, said of say local police. Uh, but a local court ruled that no uh, photos or videos or any other sort of multimedia from the crime scene are ever allowed to be made public ever. Yeah, well, that's the responsible thing to do. I mean, yeah, you know, traumatic. Yeah. Sure it, his body was found at a, a property owned by an NGO called Heifer International, uh, which has ties to uh, the Clinton Foundation. We're all surprised by that one. So, hey, hey. yeah, uh, and we didn't even know. I'm to- never going to Arkansas, I'll just you know, <laughs> <laughs> I have no yeah. plans to visit that <laughs> state ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we didn't even get to. I mean, CJ, do, do you do you want to? Uh, is there a question from the audience or two that you, you wanted to throw out? Or, Whitney, how much time well, do you have? I, I know we're, we're uh, I can probably take a couple questions, probably yeah. five to ten minutes. I should head out. Okay. Yeah, I, I would I would love to at some point maybe uh, schedule because I think this discussion has just been phenomenal. I'm just sitting here listening in. It's just amazing. Uh, would love to schedule maybe a part two uh, discussion at some point, Whitney. I know you're wanting to take some time off uh, here pretty soon, but would love to love to coordinate that. Aww, but, I, can, but I can do it in January or something. OK, yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah so so we do have a, a, a few questions uh, that have been submitted and maybe we'll just go through just a couple. I know I know that in terms of, um, you know, uh, speculating or anything like that, but. Uh, in your in your opinion, uh, what do you think are the top uh, four or five uh, groups or factions uh, of people that have emerged through this um, uh, culture of corruption that's been established uh, domestically here in the U.S. that you mapped out and now globally? What 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 are those factions do you, do you feel that are out there between the the globalists um, and their and their battles that are are being played out in real time? Yeah, so. That's hard because this group that I'm tracing throughout history have obviously evolved a lot over time. So it, it's hard to know at any given time, like exactly, you know, I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of leads I didn't chase down and stuff. So it's possible I like missed aspects where there might have been splintering or, or what have you. Um, but the way it seems to me is that this particular network I'm talking about, which, you know, people like late journalist Cassie, Danny Casalero called the octopus and stuff, um, or what I mentioned earlier, Robert Maxwell's like global organized crime network. Um, I think it's fair to say that factions of that operate in every country of the world, at least any country, every country of influence and power, um, you know, has a faction of that somewhere. Um, And of course, you know, I I, I guess I'd probably, you know, best qualified to speak maybe on factions and in the U.S. right now, I think they're uh, they both uh, essentially come from this group. Uh, the nexus we see in Iran Contra, you have the Democratic Party, which is Clinton dominated, um, and of course the Clintons have ties back to Iran Contra and a lot of those activities. Um, and uh, their trajectory uh, is pretty clear, and they're you know pretty clearly aligned with the the globalist agenda, right? And then you have um, 
sort of the faction that backs Trump uh, that comes out of that too, but seem to be more like the uh, the guys that want a, a return to the good old days of the Reagan administration where it's anti-communist and they have their particular brand of nationalism, but I don't think a uh, sane nationalists would want any sort of association with them. And I think those are, that's a particular group that, that backs, uh, backs Trump. Um, but you know, uh, I, I think, you know, they collaborate on more than they disagree on. Uh, but as we sort of get closer to this sort of end game, at least for the globalist faction, you know, I think we'll see uh, more, but it's hard to know. Um, something I found really interesting in the book when I was writing about some of the stuff about Mark Middleton um, was what's remembered as, as Chinagate. Um, but I think that's a misnomer. I think it's really more accurately termed Riyadi Gate for Mokhtar Riyadi and his his family, which were sort of like the center of this whole thing that is also known as the campaign finance scandal of 1996. And um, what you really saw there was, you know, there was a team up of this particular group, the Clinton aspects, a part that splintered off from this Iran-Contra nexus. Um, they team up with, with components of like the PLA and stuff in China. Um, but it's really with the Princelings. So there's some of these like, capitalist um sons of communist party members and they were you know some of them like the main one that comes up in the scandal his name was uh, wang jun his father who was like a a, a very uh, established and, and important member of the communist party disowned him for being too capitalist right so he, this is a guy that uh took the connections afforded to him by his family name got put in charge of a state-owned company and then used it to get filthy rich and there were i don't know how many of these there were but there were several of them and they uh were extensively involved in uh taking money uh, out of China and, you know, saving it for themselves in the offshore financial system. So, you know, that's just, you know, one example of how transnationalist uh, this really is. And you see it, you know, really all over the place. And so mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I think if you want to, you know, trace factions and stuff, you have to sort of have a real handle on the money flows because that's mm -hmm. sort of how you realize where uh, the allegiance of particular players ultimately ultimately lies you know so right. i don't know i mean there's a lot to really sure. um pick apart there that's quite a loaded question because yeah, <laughs> i you know i yeah. think it's particular on on the country too you mm -hmm. know but i think it's fair to say that you know the globalists have a lot of uh influence at this point um yeah. I, I think that's pretty clear yeah thank you for that whitney and then uh, just one more and then matthew i'll let you um close it out but oh uh, no no you, wait just one little thought on that oh, point i just Oh, good. Mark Carney did this this interesting uh, speech at Jackson Hole in 2019, where he uh, it was like this not so veiled threat to everybody who was allowed to get rich and wealthy um, over the last you know decades of globalization in the the wild wild west, you know piracy. Yeah, age. yeah, yeah. And he basically said, you know, for those who make the green transition to the new the new ethos, you will be rewarded handsomely, and for those who yeah. fail to make that transition, you will cease to exist. And so yeah. it was like very strong, like, heavy yeah. threat. <laughs> like, yeah. Mark, Mark Carney's a good example of, of how the people in charge today are, are just the mob. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because like what kind of, that's something the mob would say. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then yeah. you get like a lot of people who behaved really terribly and did evil things throughout this, this like, you know, globalized age. Yeah. And they're, they're also, a lot of them are like, oh, okay, all of that wealth you accumulated in power it was contingent on a higher objective that doesn't necessarily involve you. And now they're like, what? I'm disposable. 
what? <laughs> like, and so you got this like survivalist sort of impulse from like factions now are, are kind of realizing, ah, they're, they're maybe a bit more flushable than they thought they were. Um, and then, yeah, you get this anyway. <laughs> well, I think in that, in that faction, you know, the globalist faction, I mean, they're going to infight among themselves, you know, just like, you know, uh, predators fight over, you know, a carcass when they're ripping mm -hmm. it apart, you know, they're going to fight over who's top dog basically, mm -hmm. or who's going to get to be tech top dog in the smart dictatorship or whatever. Um, I think we see that happening and here and there to an extent. And I think it'll just accelerate as things get crazier. Yep. I, I completely agree. Let's hope anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Whitney, I know we're short of time. Uh, you don't have to go into certain details, but uh, I know you're looking forward to some time off and everything, but potential topics for a volume three, you know, you alluded maybe to a little bit <laughs> earlier, but potential <laughs> topics that would be rolled into volume three. Yeah. So I think it would probably, um, this whole like China gate thing. And again, I think that's a misnomer because it, from my research, it's China and Israel together. Well, really it's Israel's an intermediary helping these corrupt PLA connected companies. Um, which is where you have Epstein and Wexner and that whole orbit come in. And there was just a huge amount of tech transfer from the U S like in terms of military sensitive military technology that was being funneled illegally uh, to China and also other places. And then a lot of it was also nuclear technology. Um, and Epstein was definitely in the thick of that. And I think if you look at Epstein's connections at that time, he was also very involved with Microsoft um, and was was going on trips to like Mike, uh, Microsoft yeah. Russia and all of this stuff, very like their official. Huh, what's that? Very significant. Absolutely. Yeah, correct. Yes. Yeah. So I think there's a bunch of uh, really crazy stuff there because after the book came out, um, we found stuff about, um, some of the very same people that set up the front companies for a lot of what happened in Iran Contra, uh, setting up front companies that were part of the same, uh, tech transfer apparatus. And a lot of it has to do with the origins of Silicon Valley as we know it today. And I sort of, at the end of volume two, talk a lot about the, the Maxwell family and Silicon Valley. And those connections again are very significant. Um, and of course you have Epstein's connection to Silicon Valley, which are, uh, equally, if not more significant, really, than than the Maxwell ones. So I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, and in that particular thread, I have a lot of my past, pre, you know, not necessarily related to Epstein work sort of coming together, uh, you know, with this Epstein and Maxwell stuff. Because, you know, Silicon Valley is about to run our lives, basically, at least they'd like to, mm -hmm. and make us our permanent little surf slaves forever. So, you know, it'd be nice to thoroughly expose them. And it seems like this is an opportunity to do that. So. Absolutely. Matthew, I'll turn it over to you. Closing thoughts. Bring us home. Oh, this is this is this is a lot to chew on, Whitney. Thank you so much for your <laughs> feast, this feast. And I'm I'm sure everybody uh is going to re buy your books immediately after this interview is done. The links to buying them on Amazon are gonna be there in the uh, the description box of this video once it's up. Yeah, on there's also an ebook now, which might be oh, cheaper, good. especially if you if you're in a place where shipping prices are exorbitant, which is not the publisher's fault. Uh that's just because shipping companies are charging an insane amount of money to send things printed in the US outside of the US or at least far from the US. Um so consider that and then also in the next couple months an audiobook will definitely be out. It's in the works right now. So I uh, just wanted to let people know about those options and I believe Trine Day which is the publisher T R I N E day.com uh, sells both physical books as a bundle. So if you're in the continental US or, or Canada you should be able to get those pretty easily. 
Um, yeah, bypass bypass Amazon if possible. Go straight. To, yeah, uh, I'd recommend uh, that. Jeff Bezos is like not a good guy. I don't think I had to tell people that though. I think most yeah. people probably know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think they're initiated now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Whitney, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, yeah, this is. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to our next chat in January uh, after we get a chance to read through Volume Two. And uh, yeah, once again, buy the book, read the book. What are you What are you still listening to us for? Just go and buy the book. All right. Absolutely. Very good. <laughs> Whitney, Bye, Matt, thank you uh, so much. And for all those tuning in, especially the live chat, thank you for uh, all your added input and everything. So uh, Whitney, thank you. Matt, thank you as well. And enjoy your afternoon. Okay. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks.